welcome to this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. My name is Andy Woods. In this episode, we're focusing on the important issue of science teacher recruitment and retention with Dr. Andrew Grevat, Senior Lecturer in Science Education at the University of Brighton. Brain drain from British classrooms has been well documented over the past 20 years, and we explore why it's so difficult to hold on to science teachers in the profession. We talk about his research, sponsored by the Gatsby Foundation, where he focused on the particular challenges science teachers face and has uncovered some simple strategies that schools and heads of departments can apply to keep their scientists happy. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get started. Before we delve into kind of your main body of work at the moment, I'd like to kind of go back in time, so to speak, and just talk to my guests about their first kind of uh, inspiration for kind of uh, getting into science, really, and whether it was a teacher, whether it was something you just loved, was it your mum, was it your dad? What was it about science that kind of um, fired your imagination when you were when you were growing up, whatever that may be? Well, I'd start with wood lice. Strangely, I had a fascination with wood lice when I was a boy. Uh, my, one of my earliest memories is uh, seeing uh, uh, the boy next door cut a wood lice in half with a pair of scissors, which really upset me. I was only young, um, and I got very protective about them from then on, and used to keep them in little tubs and stuff, and got very interested about how they reproduced and saw them produce their babies. And so I got very into wildlife, and so anything to do with cat- caterpillars, wood lice, birds all that sort of thing. And I eventually wanted to be a vet. That was my main, uh, whenever you asked me what I wanted to do as a boy growing up was be a vet. But I never quite got to A-level grades that you would require for being a vet. Um, But I'm not, I have no regrets because I've had a a wonderful time as a teacher and in education. So a real kind of keen interest in in biology and uh, you obviously followed through that in your your science career. So you really enjoyed uh, biology and um, I guess you kind of went down at biological academic route now what is the what is the thing that kind of um after you've done your kind of academic training uh, you've got qualifications after your name what was the the was there a light bulb moment you thought ah i'm going to give teaching a go or was uh, what what led you to that decision was it a boring job that you'd had enough of or what was the what was the thing that kind of made you think science teaching is for me i want to i want to give that a go i think it comes down to communicating science because i love talking about science and um particularly wildlife, but also all, all the subjects I've enjoyed, chemistry and physics as well. I really enjoyed learning about how to teach chemistry and physics as well. Um, so the the main moment was during my biology degree where I had to decide what I wanted to do. And teaching just seemed like the, the likely thing that fitted well with communicating science. To be honest, I was more fascinated by the subject and communicating than I was about children. It wasn't until I got into teaching that I actually got fascinated about how children learn. Um, So I was very much a subject-driven person to go into the career. Um, I tried primary school and and I just went in and I realized that they got too close to you. And I liked the the secondary school experience where they they, they have that that social distance, not that there's that term at that time, um, but, you know, that you had that. So I gave it a try. I loved going in. I went into my old school and I went in and saw my old teachers. And I always loved school, to be honest. And so I think that it was, you know, I don't think I've ever really left the classroom. I'm either one side of the desk or the other. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's always been part of me um and so at that moment of putting in for the pgce i did it down at southampton um uh, sussex rejected me even though i worked for them many years later um not that i'm bitter and um <laughs> we, uh, and now i um uh from then as a um 
I did a master's in between because I was offered funding to do a master's in crop production in the changing environment, which was the first year of the International Climate Change um, uh, Report, uh, the IPCC report. Um, and so it was very, very topical and then went straight into my teaching after that. Okay. And what do you think when you went back to the classroom, first of all, because I always remember um, maybe a different view of what school was like when I was in the school compared to when I was coming back as an adult, I suppose, and viewing the full remit of um, what uh, senior school children were like um, after I'd been away for a while. How did you how did you f- feel about that when you went back? Was it a surprise or was it just as you expected? No, well, I was, I grew up in a little bubble of, a little Andy bubble of not really noticing what was going on around me, I think, because <laughs> uh, I, I was quite a, a, I think you'd call it a geeky child. I was very into my science at school and, and everything. And we had an aviary at, with budgies in it, um, which I spent a lot of time in. Um, so I don't know whether I'm doing myself any good sharing these strange secrets. Um, but that was, that was, and so I think I was in a bubble because we're in one of the lessons I remember observing in my school as somebody thinking of going to teaching, I saw a, um, a boy fill himself his mouth up with gas from the gas tap and then light it with a lighter so his head just went into this big flame Woomph. and I was like oh my god you know I was that was like nothing I'd I'd seen or didn't even imagine anybody would do that so I looked to the teacher to see what he he would do and the teacher just said you won't do that again will you because the kid was completely stunned and uh, <laughs> a little bit singed and then I, for some reason I didn't put me off so obviously I I, I knew that there would be <laughs> some challenges and surprises but there was nothing that I'd really experienced. <laughs> that sounds definitely like an old school um, health and safety teacher uh, comment now I can, uh, I can remember those trying, trying to teach from my own youth. Absolutely. Um, so, so you went into teaching and um, uh, in your teaching career what bit of the country were you in? Were you in a particular kind of school setting that you can describe what you know what the kids yeah. like when you I I learned in Southampton, so I did two contrasting schools, and they were very socioeconomically they were very contrasting the two schools, and that was a really good experience for me. And I went um, because I believed that I wanted a more challenging school, and I saw that challenging as being a behavioural thing. Um, Got a job in um, a school in uh, higher up in Hampshire, um, the Hampshire Surrey border area, and um, that was a more challenging school. Um, It was really weirdly social. Um, economic because we had uh, uh, sort of very wealthy parents um, and we had uh, a very a big estate with lots of um, uh, less wealthy people um, yeah. and less uh, less engaged with education so we had real real differences very big differences between what we had in top set and bottom set um, so uh, I then moved on to other schools and then I, I moved over to East Sussex um, and was in a bit more of a leafy um, more um, uh, more in the countryside type school um but it had its own challenges as well um you know uh, but but it was a good I enjoyed those that was the last sort of five years and uh, that was I felt very much at home in that in that environment okay and what was your thinking back to those teaching days what was the, what were the the things you look back on fondly and which, which are the things you were glad you've left behind perhaps yeah I loved I mean, I loved science teaching, so experiments, uh, you know, the practical side, demonstrations, watching children, you know, explaining things and watching children see the world through a different, in a different way. I'm very much in this idea of science reveals reveals the world in a different way. You've got the unseeable, you make the unseeable visible, um, you make um, the um, uh, the ordinary extraordinary by being able to show 
un- unpick that uh what's going on behind it and that's what i love those you know typical light bulb moments that you know watching children progress and how they learn and those challenges they have the misconceptions they throw at you and you just like i've never thought of it like that and you know however far i got into teaching i never you know there was always something to surprise me so that's what i loved what i didn't like uh uh tick and flick marking hated tick and flick marking that was the most soul-destroying thing to do and thankfully that's becoming less and less um uh part of the job and i hated playtime duty school duties hated those and i probably skived them more than i should have done um but you know they there was i, I don't know why i just found that very <laughs> yeah, that, more soul destroying than, than, than a bus duty on a cold morning well, absolutely on a, at eight o'clock in the morning yeah yeah I, I know what you mean um so then you kind of uh you decided to to leave the classroom and you decided to pursue some research in uh, in education um uh, now what what made you kind of change tax slightly at that point in your career well i did actually start uh, my uh, uh ed during while i was still teaching and i was part-time teaching and part-time doing my ed toward, towards the end and i decided i want to do the ed part because of that fascination um but also i was working with colleagues um who um who were researchers and I got very interested in in how children learn and particularly in assessment and how we assess children um, as in a as as a teacher as a professional how do you make a judgment about where a child is and how do you make that judgment of where to move them next how do you how do you do that and I'm very interested in that part of teaching and learning and even now that's that's the main part so that's what I got really into and and followed my passion on what at the time were leveled assess tasks um with level ladders and things like that and it was about um although level ladders you know they had their limitations they did have lots of um lots of the things that we still we're talking about now and that sort of the coherence of curriculum really came out for me in those um so so that's what I did my ed, ed d in um eventually that took me about five years to do at that time i actually had some quite serious mental health problems myself i had to deal with um, panic attacks and anxiety developed partly because i was doing too much and partly because um i think it you know schools were quite difficult places to work in um at that time and um and the two together didn't work very well and so i had to have some recovery time in that as well and i've learned a lot from that and and that's actually really helped me uh, in my role now um and what we're talking about you know on, on in, the, in this episode yeah definitely i was going to ask you so maybe slightly a sideways question uh, which is about um uh, Badger Publishing, which I believe you were uh, used to be involved in. I only mention this as a former teacher myself because I kind of remember, uh, let's say f- fondly, the, the, those level ladders you talk about and the fact that in a sense they are really still re- still relevant in terms of a kind of progress progressing. And I, and I like I like those, those formats. How did you get involved in that project? Um, because they were very popular with science it teachers. It was the, uh, the craziest time, to be honest. It was the most amazing thing. I started out writing level ladders and it was it was somebody else uh gave me the idea to be honest they produced something but i sort of went a bit mad and did it for every topic and and started to work out how they all linked together and i was very much influenced by the big ideas in science and how we can develop those through so it was a bigger picture of assessment and each ladder was just like a little um a little sort of rung within rungs within rungs maybe um 
one of my there was the at the time of the national strategy so some of you may have heard of those some of you may not have um and national strategies were a big government drive and the, our local consultant oh, they weren't called consultants were they? yeah they were called consultants they were called something but our local consultant took um one of my level ladders up to an Ofsted event and um we got mentioned in the tes as you know this is the way forward um i'd already got um got in touch with a couple of publishers and it didn't come to anything and um and then I tried Badger Publishing who took it on and it went from strength to strength and we 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 outsold <laughs> loads of other publishers um I you know I got some really good holidays out of the <laughs> out of the um uh, the royalties from that and I still get royalties to this day not much but I'm still getting royalties they're still used around uh, around the world it seems um and so they were they were great and they really started me on my publishing career because they were the turning point where um OUP got in touch and said do you fancy working for us um and I've had um, a great time since 2014 working with OUP as a assessment editor and um, now a curriculum editor. Yeah, definitely. I can, I can remember them well and um, I definitely used them in my time uh, in, in classrooms. Um, I was going to talk to you now about the uh, the work you do. Uh, I know that you've been at two uni- universities, you've been at Sussex and also at Brighton, and you've, you've, you must have trained hundreds of science teachers in your time there. I know we're going to talk about in a second the, uh, the work you've done with the ASE, but um, generally, um, when I started teaching uh, back in the dark ages, and even today, we seem to have exactly the same problem um, that uh, we did, you know, uh, 20, 10 to 20 years ago, which is about teacher recruitment, because I was recruited under a, um, uh, a government scheme to, you know, encourage people into science teaching, but we don't seem to have... Um, made as much progress as we could have done perhaps um as a as a, as a country um is it still hard to, to recruit and train teachers at the moment or is it or are things a bit better um it varies from you so i have been doing this quite a while now so i'm probably in my 15th year of being involved in in teacher training in some, some shape or form i started out on the subject knowledge enhancement courses and then um, moved in and that was a way to get more students uh, more trainees in because you could actually fill a knowledge gap um, of people that weren't quite scientists um, or quite within had within that area of um, being able to just walk in and be able to start teaching subjects without some serious help um, and they were really good and we've got some really good teachers who still exist who are still in the classroom because of that um, and uh, I'm in regular uh, touch with some of them on Facebook but also as mentors and things like that locally so so it did have a lasting impact the whole idea the whole question you know that big question of why is it a shortage subject um, I think there are lots of opportunities other than teaching when you've got a science degree and I think that that is why um, lots of people will go um, into research or um, go into um, some form of career that is um, uh, science-based so you know you've got you've got lots and lots of things out there that, that is different uh, that, that's different to teaching um, but also um, you have more choice I believe as a, as a science um, specialist. Um, also the type of person that does science this is very generalistic doesn't necessarily make a good teacher um so i think that there are um you know you need certain qualities to be a good teacher that not always uh scientists have um and i'm not saying all because we have some fantastic science teachers out there but you there are certain types of people that just it just won't work to be try and be a teacher we have people come in and it just it doesn't i've seen them you know it just they're awesome scientists they work in a lab brilliantly they're very 
uh, you know, that sort of uh, attention to detail, uh, um, but also impatience to get things done rather than, you know, that whole slow process of teaching and children not getting it is very frustrating, infuriating for someone who does just get it and does just want to move things on. So you've got those sort of things going on there. So I think it uh, you, you've only got a small pool of scientists that are perhaps compatible with the, the teaching career. Um, so, so there is that, but it's just, uh, um, I don't know, is that the, the big thing. And it goes up and down. I remember when I first started, we had whole cohorts of 60 um, trainee science teachers. And now, you know, you're lucky to get 30, 20 or 30. Well, 30 is 25, 30, 35 is round what we get. I've seen a bit of a, but a moved institution. So it's a bit difficult to compare because we have different different expectations and different um, capacities. So um, the thing is, there's a steady flow all the time. It's a steady flow. It's hard to make decisions. You never get the perfect science teacher turn up at the door to decide. So, you know, I'm always looking for the three A-levels and a pure science degree. That's my thing. And it's so rare to get that in. And you have to make compromises around who you're choosing to come into the career um, from that. Um, so those things, those are challenging. You've never got that sort of, uh, you don't have, like in history, you can choose everybody's got an A-star or a, a first-class history degree. That doesn't happen in in, in science. <laughs> it's almost as if the, the better you get at science, or the more academically you achieve, it's maybe, in a sense, uh, it seems like more difficult to kind of... Uh, as they say, go go back to the, the kind of absolutely level facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was going to talk to you about now the main main, main thrust of kind of the conversation. I wanted to to hear about the work you've been doing with the ASC and the, the Science Teacher SOS publication. Um, could you tell me about how that came about? What its aims are? I know you're also working with the Gatsby Foundation as well. Could you give me an overview of of the, the purpose of that project? Yeah. So if we go right back to the beginning, because what it was a, a strange. Uh, thing I'm on the 11 to 19 committee for the ASE um, and um, we were having discussion about colleagues who were leaving very good colleagues with a lot of experience were just leaving science teaching just on including people in our committee who had just had enough and just left um, and left the the career completely you know just moving out of science education and this worried us on two counts because you're losing a lot of professional knowledge um, all in one go um, but also it was clear that people weren't getting good supportive advice on making decisions about leaving the classroom. Um, there, there didn't seem to be that support in place. So I I take a train from Hatfield to Brighton and on the way home on that train, I wrote the very beginnings of the SOS of uh, just sort of the questions you should need to ask yourself, um, some resources you could go to to help inform yourself and some exercises to go through uh, to sort of structure thinking processes. So why am I unhappy here? What is it I want to um, change? Um, checking on yourself as well. So there was a big part on just checking in how are you is the first bit and then start to think about why you're unhappy where you're working if you could change anything, what would it be and what? Would you, how would you change it? And then there was specialist advice for depending what phase you're in. So whether you're an NQT, whether you're head of department, established teacher, um, whatever, um, we, we've got those. And so that that became a little booklet and that was two or throw over a year, just sort of developing it as a, as a group. Um, and then we published it online. 
um, just before a conference, which must have been about four years ago. Um, and we had 3,000 downloads very quickly. Um, and we were like, wow, we've hit on something here. And it wasn't just science teachers downloading it, even though it was written for them, the other teachers were using it as well. Um, so we... We, it's been through a couple of iterations since we've improved it. Um, it's it's appropriate for the um, all the nations, the UK nations, um, and uh, it's accessible to, to to lots of people now. Um, but then we had some inquiries um, from uh, the DFE and uh, various um, unions and stuff about you know this is this is useful. Can we do something with it? Um, but we ended up with some funding from the Gatsby Foundation uh, that started not this year, the year before. Um, to just trial it, and it's it's a quant it's more of a qualitative approach. There's some quantitative stuff in there, but it's just to try or pilot it and see how schools can use it. So we're just looking at how schools can use it and seeing if it has any impact on retention. Um, through um, we've we've got a questionnaire that happens before and after the 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 intervention i suppose is a way of looking at it um we started it and then covid hit and everything closed down and we just weren't in a position to to encourage schools to continue just because it was just like you know there's enough to go on with but yeah but now uh gatsby very kindly allowed us to restart this september which we've done we've got 20 schools involved which is more than we had before um and we're doing it all online now so there's no visiting schools so we've got schools in england taking part 20 schools and they are um, they're doing the survey at the start they're working out how their department is uh, their emotional needs their job um, satisfaction and their career intentions so they've got a good idea of their their retention um, uh, potential in their in their department then they're using the SOS document and the um, the questions, the, the um, exercises and so on with their department, either individually or as, as a group. And then at the end of it, we do a very similar questionnaire um, and see if uh, what's happened. And we're doing a case study of each school and anybody who's thinking of leaving, we're hoping to interview um, and um, and also people who aren't leaving and, and find out um, some, you know, some of the information we that might help us with future projects. So without prejudging um, kind of the, the outcomes of the uh, the research, we're recording this now in, in January 2021 um, and we're, we're back, uh, as the time we're speaking, back in kind of uh, the school closure period. Uh, do you have any guesses about whether this will have a positive or negative effect on teacher retention for science teachers, particularly during this kind of odd period? Well, because we did the, the we had half a year's worth of data last year, um, and so and we've got some of the schools continuing on um, that were involved in the first part. Um, so we've got a bit of information from them, and they're those ones that are continuing are continuing to do what they've done and have found the second questionnaire useful. They they're using it even more effectively, hopefully, than they than they um, were before, and we're probably hopefully we'll see that. I mean, again, prejudging, but um, it does feel that they've got even better handle on it. Um, so um, in terms of whether it's going to what impact it will have the biggest thing is it seems that schools first off are addressing the fact that retention is important to them and you are important to us as staff and we are now open and we have got um, opportunities to talk about retention you you staying with us um, if you're unhappy we can talk about why that is and see if we can make any changes um, and 
so the conversation is opening and I think that's one of the biggest thing that's come across so far schools have said you know they're, they're putting their money where their mouth is if that's the right phrase um, they're saying look we know that we have a retention issue in our department or we'd like to keep you um, and so talk to us we will we will find ways through um, so that is the biggest thing that I think is um, coming out of it also which was only supposed to be the research instrument but actually is probably one of the most powerful parts of it is this survey of about 30 questions um, 10 on your emotional needs 10 on uh, your um, uh, career um, sorry your uh, job satisfaction and the last one is on your um, career intentions and as a head of department you have that information it's all anonymized but you have your whole department's information you can see who's thinking of leaving this year well not who you can see that there's someone thinking of leaving this year in the next three years and the next five years you can see that half your department's really unhappy with something you can see half your department's really happy with that so you can challenge that and you can also see if there's um emotional needs not being met that you could actually find strategies to be using as a in the whole department to make people feel more secure in their job sounds like a really kind of a, kind of sensible um toolkit in order to, to help those departments i guess the challenge is and i think you alluded to this on the ASE, is that obviously the schools you're working with are possibly maybe the more enlightened ones um uh, and it's difficult to hear from those those other schools, I guess, which which have those re- retention uh, difficulties. Um, I remember listening to another podcast where they talked about, you know, how can you judge, you know, how how good a school is, you know, and it's those first crucial years, those first one or two years, whether teachers um, stay on or whether they just get burnt out because um, they, you know, it's, it's too much for them for, for whatever reason, uh, and it kind of it's a self perpetuating problem in a sense. You get a department that's not well, you know, well structured, is not stable, and then it's very difficult for teachers to move into a a, um, a kind of a department that's not stable at the beginning. But I can see how that 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 toolkit is is going to be really kind of pragmatic use, and um, it's really nice to hear that it, it's it's being. Um, uh, it's, it's popular downloaded and hopefully people are using it and will continue to use it because I don't think it's a particular problem um, that is, is going to go away. I mean, also on your the talk I saw at the ASC, you talked about kind of the, the factors about what makes teaching, so it was science teaching particularly, um, more stressful than other jobs. My my wife was a was a history teacher and I was always moan, moaning to her and saying, oh, we've got to do this, this and this. Uh, what are your thoughts on why science particularly, again, is... Um, and I agree that it is a bit more challenging than some of the possible other roles um, in schools. I might be obviously biased, but um, have you got any thoughts about what uh, about why it is that science teaching might be perceived perhaps to be a bit more challenging at times? Absolutely. Now, this is this is proving to be the divisive thing, to be honest. And uh, we've we've been doing some in, uh, we've done questionnaires with heads of uh, uh, senior teachers as well, and we're hoping to do some interviews with them. And this is this is the big question. We know that science teachers have different challenges to other teachers. Okay, and I think that's a good way of phrasing it. Okay, yeah. so um, we have different challenges, and we usually have to teach three subjects and three quite different subjects um, and I know that MFL do as well I'm not uh, I'm not denying any of the other we're, we're yeah, talking about our situation um, so we do have three separate subjects to teach um, and we do have practical work which is um, quite demanding and it can be stressful especially in your early years of running practical work but even when you change school as an experienced teacher it can be stressful rebuilding relationships in a new school and starting practical work again and things like that. I think that that's something to be uh, be aware of there. We're also seen usually as a core subject. And so there's higher expectations on us like there is in maths and English. Um, so um, those things together can cause 
um, problems. And also, if you're coming in and you're not a specialist, really, um, you don't feel a specialist in biology, chemistry or physics, that can be that can be uh, your sense of security, your sense of status can be feel undermined and that can be stressful. So I think that we have got our unique challenges and schools need to think about how can those be met um, and how can those be, uh, you know, how can we make changes to facilitate those things so they're not so um, stressful. Okay. And what are your thoughts about, um, I was thinking while we are talking about, um, I'm not saying uh, you would obviously choose to do this, but if there was, if somebody came to you, a government minister that came to you and said, um, what would, what would need to change in order for, to, to get you back in the classroom for say five years in a, in a, in a secondary school, what things would need to happen, do you think, for you to even consider that as a, as an option for you? What kind of things do you think would really incentivize you to, to, to do that? I think personally, and I know this isn't a good thing to say, but I'm a bit older now, okay, so I'm older. um, And I think, uh, you know, I would only go back part time if I was to go back. And I do think about it often, if I'm honest, Uh, especially if I go and see lessons and see school. I just think, oh, (laughs) it's still still a draw. Um, But I'd only do it part time, partly because, not because I'm not committed to teaching, it's just because I think I can do a lot of things beyond the classroom that still have huge impact on on science education so i think i don't it you know so for me as a person going back in i think that i would have uh, those would be my be my things but in general terms about getting people in um i think it is about well i think you need to go and see what it's like now <laughs> i think because it is so much different i mean i've been out of the classroom for quite a while now um and it is schools are different places they've become more business like in my view uh generally there's a more of a um and i wouldn't say necessarily more professional as a word but definitely more uh, on a on a business model um and and that has changed um in the you know 15 20 years um since i since i know i trained years ago it wasn't even 20 it was more than 20 years ago <laughs> 1996 i started just in case you're worried uh so yeah that's when i when i started teaching so um so things have changed um and so it's about going in and seeing if you could could do that the actual teaching in front of classes um and stuff i love and would still you know i get the occasional opportunity if i can skew a project to make it happen i get the opportunity to go in um but the actual sort of teaching planning teaching assessing and all that sort of thing but i think it comes down and this is what i say to my trainees every time it's a match between you and a school and sometimes that match isn't right and so it's how you fit in it's very much horses for courses you you need to go in and see if you fit in that department and sometimes departments change and you find you don't fit anymore so you know perhaps it is time to move so there it's about being aware that just because you're not doing well in one school you don't feel like you're doing well in one school it's lost its joy doesn't mean to say that you're going to it's going to be the same in a different school and i think that this is part of the sos issue is that teachers are just going i can't I'm not liking the situation I'm in. I can't teach anymore. I need to leave teaching rather than thinking I need to leave this school and find a new school to work in. And that's what part of the SOS project was to do, to say, think about this first. Don't just jump. Think about all the things you can do first before you move. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. Um, having taught in different schools, that you know, schools are very idiosyncratic and one maybe not brilliant for you at all and others might fit you completely i think what teachers find difficult is sometimes it's difficult to judge that the day you turn up and uh 
uh, you go for interview is very difficult sometimes. But yeah, I, I definitely agree that, you know, you can be successful, very successful in one place and maybe just not work for you in another place. Uh, very true. Um, thinking about, uh, obviously, the pandemic um, and how that's affected education, uh, this, this, these, well, almost it's getting two, two years um, by the time this podcast might come out. Um, but uh, what is there anything you think the teaching education kind of uh, sphere should keep um, as uh, something that obviously been, we've been disrupted and we've done things in a different way? Um, is there anything that we teachers should be doing um, as a result of the pandemic, things they may have learned um, to do better because they forced to, to, to have learned to do them better? What kind of things do you think we, the teachers should be doing um, uh, when, they go, when things go back to normal, whenever that might be? Well, this is it. In fact, I've been having conversations just this morning with mentors that I've been, I've, I'm doing online meetings with mentors and trainees at the moment. And obviously, they've had two or three weeks of just trying to get their heads around this this online learning and, and it's new for them all. Um, and the, the whole question of whether online learning will disappear now, um, you know, we guess go back to normal. I don't think it will ever. I don't think we will go back to normal. Um, I think that we will have uh, periods, well, whether it's um, coronavirus or some other disease or whatever that we're dealing with, um, I'm, I'm not sure that we're, you know, that that's n- may not end as quickly as we would like. Um, so we might have periods of lockdown that we just fall into much easier. Um, you know, we've got a routine for it. Oh, it's lockdown time. We'll just do it. Um, so that's my sort of pessimistic but biologist perspective. I used to love reading books on the plagues, uh, the coming plague I used to read. And that's all about, I've been waiting for this to happen for, for years and been surprised it hasn't so you know it's it's i think lots of barges in the same place so it's not unexpected um but it's it's caught us out for sure um so long term we probably will need to have online capacity um i do wonder what the world would be like if we didn't have any onlineness i mean what would we be doing you know if we could, schools would just be dark closed and that would be it wouldn't it um but anyway that's that's a whole different story um so we've got that um but also something that's come out of the the sos project is collaboration um people have really valued feeling that they're working as a team again colleagues support all that when in in you know the, the many of the schools um when people have just been asked to write what's the best thing about your department right now they have said working with my colleagues collaboration support from my colleagues that's come out uh, we've had about 146 teachers reply in this and that's um and those are the comments that come out top so there's a sense of collaboration i think sometimes when things are just going on we lose that but it takes a crunch moment a moment of drastic change for people to come together again and actually appreciate how important we are to each other Mm. i think actually having uh, i was invited as part of my my um role um for edexcel to a teacher meet and actually thought that this was a much better way of getting teachers together at the end of the day at four o'clock from different schools compared to obviously in the past you have to leave your school do your bus duty drive to the next city try and park somewhere um, and obviously, that, that all these all these barriers stop teachers meeting. And I thought this is such an efficient way to share ideas, to talk to each other, uh, to, to to talk through any problems you've got. So in, in that sense, I thought that was a fantastic improvement. I would say in terms of teachers talking to each other. Absolutely, CPD um, as well has really taken off. So I work with uh, our local um, uh, SLP, the uh, Science Learning Partnership, and the ASC as well. We do our own um, online stuff. And I had my local committee meeting last night online. Um, at the point, you know, you have your drink with you, had a gin with me and stuff, you know, and you just have a chat and get things going. So it can be, it can be good, but I am missing people 
face to face. So the ASC conference was very, very different this year. I go every year. I've been and and I just am miss missing going up and talking to those people just in passing. The thing that's been cut out, the because we've become efficient, it's very efficient all of this. But what mm. we're missing out on is passing somebody's office and popping in and just seeing how they are, um, seeing someone in the prep room and just seeing their face, and you can just have that moment of, oh, you okay? Um, mm. And uh, and then um, in networking that sort of passing by one another but what you're saying i think is absolutely bang on and i think we should capitalize on this we shouldn't do it instead of the other stuff we do we should definitely make it um um, opportunities for online stuff um because i do think that it is much more efficient and interestingly i've been doing so many well-being sessions i've got a well-being thing i do um and uh, I've been doing that. I've done it in Lincolnshire um, just recently as well. So I'm able to get around the country and do these things. And often there's five, six teachers, but actually it's really worth it. Just sit down, consider your own well-being, thinking how you support other people and think of some strategies to to just make sure you're all right. And that that's making a big difference. And definitely. And I think, um, you know, people in those more rural rural areas of the, the UK will really benefit from that. If their broadband works, OK, you know, they sometimes go to these events that maybe um, it's difficult to get to get through if you're in the middle of Northumberland or something. Mm. Um, talking back uh, to taking talking about books, I just wanted you to uh, is there anything you'd recommend. So when you when you in your teacher training um, uh, hat on. Is there any book you th- you give to every uh, student or say this is this is the one that will give you the most progress in the shortest amount of time um, uh, and really recommend they they start at that point? Okay, so um, we've got we've got various factors here. Now you've got me on something that is a big passion is books. Um, I'm actually building a library in our garage downstairs at the moment, so that is uh, I love books and okay. and, and have uh, a lot of them. In terms of the t- in terms of trainees, the first book I to get them to read before they even start the course is Teach Now Science by Tom Sherrington because that gives you a lovely introduction to all the sort of the it's a gentle introduction he writes it in a very um light way that you it's accessible to a brand new teacher than just come in and go okay then I sort of know what I'm letting myself in for I know the sort of things I need to be thinking about and I'd like ideally I like my students to have read that before they step in on the first day of September you know I want them to at least engage with that so that is that one and then I've got another one that I'm recommending at the moment because I'm, I'm loving it myself and that is The Powerful Ideas of Science and How to Teach Them by Jasper Green um, and he um, he's now uh, the HMI Science uh, for Ofsted um, and he's uh, very passionate about big ideas he sort of developed the big ideas but it's all about explaining it's all about how do we communicate um, to children and how do children learn and what's the best ways of doing that and he unpicks a lot of the sort of misconceptions and how we can challenge those so that is um, my my favorite book favorite book at the moment but you ask me next week I might have another one kids <laughs> <laughs> tell us about you're also an author yourself you've written a book about um, how to teach for progress um, what was your kind of objective for that what, were, what kind of um, problem were you trying to solve for teachers right Progress became a big buzzword in in the UK, well, in England particularly, um, and everybody was talking about progress, progress, progress. Children need to make progress. We had the make progress in 15 minutes and a lesson stuff, and it all got a bit um, strange. Now, I I was fortunate enough to go out and uh, work in Kazakhstan and um, in China and various other places and realised that that the word progress isn't really part of the language, um, part of schooling, part of what teachers do. Um, and so I, I wanted, first of all, to problematize what progress is and what, how we can think about it. 
Um, and then um, the, the main thing that comes out of the book is about improving teacher assessment literacy. Children will understand, well, children will make progress if, as a teacher, you um, have a set of skills that you can judge where they are, where they need to be, and how to get there. Be able to predict any of the issues they have um, in understanding, misconceptions, mistakes, all those sort of things, and have a range of ways of intervening in those. And then we've got the things to do with formal assessments and qualifications and things, making sure that you can adequately prepare them for those, um, including exam technique and things like that. And then also having a critical eye on assessment as a um, as a tool. So whether it's valid, uh, well, whether the inferences you're making are valid, whether it's reliable, what is its particular purpose? What's the purpose of that assessment and how, um, what can you actually infer from it? Um, so those are the things that I think are really important. That's what came out of that book. The book sort of changed from what is progress to, well, how can we promote progress um, in the best way? And my, my feeling was, is having good assessment literacy, which is often underplayed as part of our teaching repertoire. Yeah, I definitely see that with with my own children and having the joy of homeschooling is is literacy is often the biggest barrier, whether you're teaching maths or, or science um, and obviously in, in things like English. But um, often my my child will say, and, I, and I've been a teacher, you know, I don't understand what that means or what that word means. Or and there's this, you know, assumptions we all make sometimes when we've we've learned the stuff and we know the stuff that they've got no idea because they've, they've put an odd word that they've never seen before. And it's not that they can't answer the question, it's that they don't understand what the question is asking them to do. Um, so, um, yeah, definitely, I think literacy is really important. I mean, you're, you, you said you're a lover of books. I'm quite interested, as we kind of uh, uh, move to the end of the podcast, for you to tell us um, what your favourite popular science books are, because I'm always interested in some new recommendations myself. So there are a couple ones that you really go back to uh, and think, oh, this is a, this is a great classic and you, you, you've read it more than once? Well, the, the classic for me, but it was the first book I read as a popular science book at, at my A-level, was um, uh, The Selfish Gene by um, Richard Dawkins. And again, an expl- as an explainer, he is awesome. He explains things. So, and I still got images in my head of how he describes how um, how bats see using... Um, using sonar um that that's the bit that i felt and i could actually visualize what he was saying really clearly just from the word so that that sort of thing really fascinates me how someone can explain something so well and so clearly um i i read all sorts so it's quite hard to pin down but one that's stuck with me recently is the hidden life of trees by um peter and i looked up how to say surname he's german um it's uh uh, Peter Wollaben. He um, and this is about how trees feel, communicate, and um, how the, how they interact with each other in a forest. And the thing that stayed with me is that trees, without other trees around them, show signs of loneliness. And and I'm quite a, I think quite an emotionally um, uh, what's the word uh, sensitive person. Um, and so um, that and I've always loved plants and and whatever you and this was this was for me a sort of like I feel like we underestimate nature on every count that you know the communication between animals you know that we're always finding animals are actually got some form of language got words you know meerkats having words for flying you know for eagle and for snake and stuff like that that they all communicate with and everybody's really surprised I never feel really that surprised by it I just feel that you know we are always underestimating um the the amount of communication there is and the fact that trees do it I've actually got the book here and I'm holding it and waving it at you is um is 
is fascinating. So that gives you a real insight to that. And the, another sad thing was, <laughs> you got me on it though, um, that the, this cut, <laughs> these stump tree stumps were staying alive for years and years and scientists couldn't work out how. And it's because their trees in their same species are feeding them under the ground through their roots and through the fungi to keep them alive um and i'm just like this is amazing um and uh it does worry me even more about deforestation which is upsetting on one level enough but with a <laughs> with with lonely trees as well and trying to keep out to alive i might be in tears by the end of it but <laughs> <laughs> So, um, what's the title of that book again? The title, title of the is "The Hidden Life of Trees" um, life. by okay. Peter Wolben or okay. Wolben, I think I did look it up. I'd say it's interesting what you're saying because it does remind me, um, uh, and I must be emotionally connected uh, to trees, possibly because of my surname. But um, yeah. uh, it always makes me think about um, uh, Lord of the Rings and the old Ents, and uh, yep. them getting together. <laughs> it just makes you think because I was watching that with the kids over the uh, over the last uh, set of holidays, and it does it does make you think about uh, that, as you say, the interconnectedness of uh, of nature as as a broad. Uh, you know, uh, observable thing, obviously. In Absolutely. This book. Yeah. yeah. And Avatar, people often say when I talk to them about this book, they remember Avatar with all the trees being connected, which you can see with the blue light. But obviously, I don't think we quite go as far as they're not claiming blue light in this one. But no. <laughs> So my last question to you is, my last question I usually ask is, uh, and it's back to the old science teaching, um, but you must have observed quite a few good experiments in your time as your role as, as uh, uh, you know, training science teachers. Is there any um, science experiment you particularly like to see uh, or, or an investigation you've seen that has really been uh, great in schools that either you've done or, or you've seen uh, one of your trainees do and thought, oh, that's a lovely one. I could see that many times and I think I think uh, kids will get uh, something out of it. But I usually say you're not allowed to say the Van de Graaff generator. That's, uh, good. That one's bad. Because, well, that's <laughs> one of my least favourite because I just... Oh, okay, that's good. Well, okay, because okay. I'm terrified of it. I've always, I always sweat so much with the Van de Graaff. I always think it's far bigger threat than it really is. But anyway, the thing that always, and I, it's the simplest thing in the world, but looking down a microscope at some cells is the biggest thing because you always see the awe and wonder um, from children when they get when they when they realize it that you know they're looking beyond an, an air bubble but when they actually see a cell and something moving or something so small again it's this thing about making the ordinary extraordinary looking at a piece of uh, you know your own cheek cells or looking at onion cells or that plasmolysis where you can get the cells to shrink with uh, you know anything where you where you look at look at something under the microscope and you get children to go wow is the big thing i'm very into looking as a hobby into uh the organisms that look in moss live in moss and i've got my own microscopes and i look at moss organisms and i did it with my trainees not this year because of obvious but the previous year and we found a tardigrade which is the you know this is the king of the moss creatures and um these are the water bears and they were i managed to project it from the microscope onto the whiteboard and we had them taking selfies of each other with the with the um uh, tardigrade and you know the aura wonder in adults of seeing these things is amazing so anything with microscopes i feel like we underutilize the microscope in school and anything like that um is makes me go wow and gets me very wanting to get up and get involved yeah, that sounds great. I always remember, um, as you say, the, the normal is probably more exciting than the extraordinary in the sense is that is I remember even just putting a bit of sand with a bit of sellotape underneath a microscope and seeing the amazing different um, uh, types of things you you don't realise are in sand. Uh, uh, and yeah, seeing, seeing the kids' faces is really good to see. So yeah, microscope definitely 
get your mic scopes out, people, you know, start uh, using them again. I think that's really important. Um, I really enjoyed uh, chatting, chatting to you today, Andy. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, best of luck with all your research and I hope it goes well. And uh, obviously, uh, best of luck with all uh, training all those new enthusiastic science teachers for now and for years to come. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. As we come to the close of another View from the Lab podcast, it's time to reflect. I hope you enjoyed this episode and it has perhaps given you some ideas to help your science department keep your team strong and support your teachers. Have you got a strong science team? Why not join me on the podcast and tell me what works for you? Please email me at andrew.woods at pearson.com. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you on the next one.